0: And I want to read actually chapters 8 and 9, Ezekiel's Ezekiel in chapter 8 and chapter 9, please. And I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Uh, many have asked about that, and I've been using the ESV and the NIV in Ezekiel, and I don't always know when I'm going to use which one, just depends on the passage. And to complicate matters, uh, in, at least for me, they're both black. It just depends on which one I pick up as I come in. So, as I see here, it's the ESV. So, Ezekiel chapter 8, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come uh, to your word and I pray that you would grant to us grace to listen, to listen carefully, to take seriously, as Moses said, these are not idle words for us, but our life. And so I pray they would arrest us and captivate us. Father, enable us uh, to know you better, um, more completely and fully than, than before, that we wouldn't play around with who we think you might be or devise you in a way as we think you ought to be. But, Father, that we would come to see you as you are. So please help us take all that in. In Jesus' name, amen. Ezekiel in chapter 8. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. that I looked, and behold, the form that had the appearance of a man below what appeared to be. His waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway, of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the, the glory of the Lord, of, of the God of Israel, was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate and the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they're committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping thing and things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah, the son of Zephan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said also to me, You will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me into the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O Son of Man? You will see still greater abominations than these. He brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord and behold at the entrance of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east worshipping the sun toward the east and then he said to me have you seen this O son of man is it too light a thing for the house of, of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger behold they put the branch to their nose Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And then he cried in my... Ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. And then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity, or will bring their deeds upon their heads. Behold, the man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, brought back words saying, I've done as you commanded me. Now, remember, we first met Ezekiel as he got a great vision of God. and. That vision of God drove him literally to his face, that is, on his face, before God in humility, because he saw God not as he had imagined God to be, had heard God to be, but as God was, holy, and there he was. And then you remember it was the Spirit of God who lifted Ezekiel up, as one must be lifted only by the Spirit of God to stand in the presence of God. The Spirit of God lifted Ezekiel and gave him ears so that he could hear the word that God would give to him. And then he commissioned Ezekiel to go out and to speak this word, this prophetic word amongst a group of people who he said were rebellious and really wouldn't listen to Ezekiel. Wouldn't listen to Ezekiel because God said they don't listen to me, so they won't listen to you. But go anyway, whether they hear it or not, and speak this word for it's true. And we realize... That is, Ezekiel was humbled before God and given the ears to hear and the word to speak that all he had with him was the spirit of God, the word of God at work and he was to go amongst the people. And then you remember that God called Ezekiel to an act of prophecy. That is, he was to lay on his left side for a certain number of days, his right side for a certain number of days and in so doing, it would it would mark out for uh, the northern kingdom which had already been destroyed and the southern kingdom, Judah, that would be destroyed in the next decade. But that God would bring judgment uh, against them and all that he acted out and the way he cooked his food and the way he ate. And you remember that the judgment upon Judah would be great and would be devastating and would be astounding to us and we realize that God is holy and he will not be mocked and we realize that hell is real. But we realize too, so is the grace of God. If we had time, we would have read chapter 6 and 7, which would have been somewhat more of the same in terms of where 4 and 5 led us in the judgment of Jerusalem. But now we find Ezekiel sitting in his house, his hut, a refugee. Remember, he had been exiled from Babylon uh, some years before, and uh, he was now about 700 miles away from Jerusalem, and he was sitting uh, with the other elders of Judah uh, we don't know exactly what they were talking about. There were a couple of issues, obviously. This weirdness in Ezekiel and what he was prophesying by his enactment that they would be destroyed, uh, that their sin had come before God. And now he would act and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And so perhaps they were talking about that. There was a great discussion amongst the exiles and even amongst those who lived back in Jerusalem. Uh, a great discussion about whether or not The remnant of Israel, whether or not there would be a remnant saved out of all this destruction. And if so, where would that remnant come from? Would it come from the the exiles? Well, if so, how? How would God preserve a remnant amongst all these people that were scattered to the wind? Would it come those in Jerusalem? That was sort of the, where the, where the heavy bets were. That yes, it would come out of those who were in Jerusalem because they were there, they had the temple. Still something might good come from there even though God said he was going to destroy it. So where would, out of, out of, of which camp would this remnant come? It shouldn't surprise us to realize that those back in Jerusalem said it'll come from us. And it shouldn't surprise us that those who were exiled said no, it'll come from us. And there they were. But in the midst of this discussion with these elders, once again, Ezekiel is caught up in God. Um, It appears as if, the way he described it, he was grabbed, if you will, by the back of his head, and he was taken up into visions wherein he could see Jerusalem. And as he begins to see Jerusalem, he sees the temple there, and he sees initially two things. First, he sees the glory of God. In Jerusalem, in the temple, it's there. But then, he sees first at the north gate. Now, in the temple area, there was an outer court and an inner court. To get into the inner court, you had to go through these gates or these doors. And there were three primary ones. Um, and uh, the, the three primary ones were, were, were such that uh, you could come in from the east, you could come in from the south, uh, you could come in from the north the west was the holy of holies and so these gates in which you could come and he sees from the north gate something he called this idol or this image of jealousy this image that provokes God to jealousy Now you remember that as you entered into the place of worship, one's mind should be ready to worship. One's mind should be focused upon God. Worship is really a time of uh, when we exalt, when we praise, when we honor God. And there's a certain sense in which our whole life is worship, but we also know that there are those special times when we enter as the people in Israel entered into the temple area in order to worship corporately. And it's interesting that this north gate was the gate through which the king was most likely to come. Others would come, but certainly the king would come in that way, through that particular gate. And so there was this idol of Jealousy, and it would focus the attention of the king and anybody else who would come off, uh, come through that gate, on someone, on something, other than God. And we don't know exactly what that was. It, it could have been a variety of different things. There were there were idols that moved in and out of the temple, depending on who the king happened to be at that particular time, and, and the degree of, of degradation, the degree of abomination, the degree of, 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 of corrupt worship going on in the temple. But this is what Ezekiel is seeing. that There's corrupt worship going on right in the presence of God. As the glory of God is, they're missing that. They're not seeing that. What they're seeing is this, first of all, this idol that provokes God to jealousy. Now you say, it seems rather unseemly for God to be jealous, for to use that particular expression about him. But yet, you might remember when he gives the law in Exodus chapter 20, he says expressly that he is a jealous God. In Exodus 34, he says, My name is Jealous. Now we think that to be a bad quality because in us often jealousy is. In us, jealousy often is a quality that goes something like, I want what you have, and I hate it that you have it. And not only that, I hate you because you have it. That's jealousy. We can be jealous of people's possessions. We can be jealous of people's position. Uh, We can be jealous of the praise that people get. We want that. That's the sense of jealousy. But we also know that in some sense there can be a good aspect of jealousy if that is protecting a relationship of love. When Karen and I uh, teach our premarital deal, I'm sure I've shared this before, that uh, we give, uh, I think in the second week, a number of definitions of marriage, all of which have some flaws in them and some, some good aspects to that. But there's one definition that no one likes but me. Uh, and it's it's a definition that... Really, and they all hate this one. In fact, they, I, I wait for everyone to say how much they don't like this one before I say how much I like it. Um, it's, it's just me. I like that sort of orneriness. But the um, but it compares marriage to a pair of shears, scissors. And the part people don't like, and this is probably the bad part of it, but they don't like the, even the good part, uh, is that it says marriage is, is like a pair of shears because you have two often moving in different directions, which isn't necessarily the best thing in marriage. But the thing that everybody takes offense to with me is to say that marriage is like shears because it cuts or it destroys everything that comes between them. That's what scissors do. But you see, that's good jealousy in a marriage. If you want a marriage to be a marriage, husband and wife to jealously love each other, not to violence, necessarily, but to love each other to such a degree that if there's anything out there that's going to come between you and break up your relationship, whether it's someone trying to lure the affection of your spouse away, or whatever it happens to be, then you need to be jealous. You need to come in. You need to deal with that. You need to remove that source of temptation, that which could take away the affection Another, Again, that doesn't mean you go kill that other person. Maybe it means you take out the trash. I don't know. That's your deal. But it means that's a good kind of jealousy. Someone comes to you and says, oh, you know, your husband is flirting with another woman, and you say, well, I don't care. Do you really love him? It's a good part of that. You see, when God speaks of himself as being a jealous God, on the one hand he's saying, no, no, you don't understand. If you belong to me, if you're in covenant with me, then I'm jealous for your affections. If your affections go anywhere else, then that angers me, and I'm going to move to pull your affections back towards me. But not only that, we realize that God is jealous, not only for our affection, but he's jealous for his own name. That is... He won't share His glory with anyone else. Now that's where God is different than you and me. You see, God can say that, and He can say that it's righteous to glorify Him and Him alone. That everyone, including Himself, needs to be focused on Him. Focused on His glory. Now, if you and I said that, or should I put it this way: when you and I say that, when we live as if we're saying that, that you're to glorify me, we know that's wrong, because we don't have the right to that kind of glory, because we're not the creator of all that is. We're not the sustainer that all that is. We don't supply not everyone depends upon us, but God is to be glorified. And so you see, it's an act, really, of injustice when all of our affection isn't upon God, because He, and He alone, deserves it. And for Him not to be upset about, him, about that, for Him just to ignore that, would be immoral, would be unjust. Because you see, God says, you really want to know what real life is, and you really want to know who I am, then you should have no other gods before me. And he, by that he's not saying that you shouldn't have, that I should be the top in all of your other gods. And there shouldn't be any of your gods in front of me saying, no, 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 I'm the only God that there is. And by that he means you're to be utterly dependent upon me. You see, when we go to God, we don't go to God and say, God, this is who I am. We go to God and we say, God, tell me who I'm to be. It isn't that we come to him already defined. We come to Him for definition. We come to Him so that He will tell us who we are. We don't come to God and say, God, this is what I think. We come to God and we say, How should I think? What is truth? Enable me to understand. Teach me. That's how we come to Him. We don't come to God and say, God, these are my desires. We come to Him and we say, What should my desires be? We don't come to God and say, This is what I love. We come to God and say, God, what should I love? We don't come to God and say, This is what I hate. We should come to God and say, God, what should I hate? What is evil? What is wrong? What should I turn away from me? You see, that's how we come to God. We come to God in dependence upon Him because He is God. And if at any point in time we're not doing that, if anyone isn't doing that, coming to God like that, to depend upon Him for definition, that He will define the purpose of our lives, then it provokes God to jealousy because our affections are towards another. Our desires are towards another. We're looking to another to help us and define us. And you see, as the king would come in that north gate and he would see this image, whatever it would happen to be, he would take his attention off of God and it might remind him of all the other nations that he has an allegiance with and he's saying, I'll trust them. It might be uh, an image of a fertility goddess or God that he can look at and say, oh, I will trust our intelligence I will trust our understanding of weather patterns I'll, I'll trust all of these to, in order to get our crops to grow but not think about God and as it would divert the king's attention away from God it would provoke him to jealousy because not only that you see God says if you really want to come to me if you really want to know what life really is not only don't have any other gods before me but don't make any images of me he says, not only do you need to worship me as the right God, but you need to worship me correctly. That is, worship me and not some image that you may come up of me because there's no way you can do that. There's no way you can capture who I am. All you can do is listen and learn and, and, and catch my revelation of who I am. But if ever you try to construct that in a picture, if ever you try to construct that in a sculpture, if ever you try to construct that in an image, whether it's on paper or in your mind, you're going to fail you're going to miss me because I'm bigger than anything you can ever construct I'm bigger than anything you can ever think about and so just listen to me take it and worship me because you see the most important thing about worship is the object the one we're worshipping if we don't get that right then we miss it all it's not simply a matter of sincerity oh it's that but it's a matter of sincerely worshiping God. If we sincerely worship not God, that is not worship. provokes him to jealousy. And then he says, not only that, but you shouldn't misuse my name. That is to say, this is who I am. Once you know who I really am, now honor me with your whole life. Hallow me, honor me with all of your life. And then only that trust in me and the way that I'll know that you're trusting in me is so I'm going to give you this Sabbath and, and you're going to rest. And in your rest, you're going to be showing that you depend upon me for everything that I'm the supplier. And on that day, you'll cease from providing for yourself in any, in any way so that it'll be proof that you're trusting in me alone. God says, that's the way you worship me and anything else. He says, Provokes to jealousy. Then he goes on with Ezekiel and he says it's it's, it's even worse than that. Verse 7 he says, And he brought me to the entrance of the courts and when I looked there, behold, I saw a hole in the wall. And so you get this picture of Ezekiel looking at this temple area and there's these various gates and so forth. And he takes him to this place and he sees this hole in the wall. Now anytime you see a little hole in the wall, that means I bet there's something going on back there. That that nobody else but I'm going to see... He sees this hole in the wall and then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold there was an entrance and he said to me, Go in, see the vile abominations that they're committing there. So I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. So he sees all these pictures on the wall and we think that's weird. But understand that these pictures on the walls were images that were things that were unclean and rather than worship. God, whose glory was in the temple, they settled on being satisfied by images that were unclean images of base things. Rather than looking at the beautiful God, they would look at a serpent, a snake, a rodent, a creepy, crawly thing. Verse 11, And all before them were the seventy men of of, of the elders of the house of Israel. These weren't your average folk. These were the elders of the house of Israel in these little places, in these little rooms, even the important was, uh, Jehazaniah uh, was a very prominent elder from a very prominent family, if you read in the book of Jeremiah and other places. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke, the cloud of incense went up. And then he said, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? So you get this impression that each one of them alone, in their little room, with these particular pictures on the walls of base things. And they were getting satisfaction from these. These were helping them, at least in their own eyes. And they were being able to do this, for they say that the Lord doesn't see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. They said, God can't see us, he's gone from here. But his glory was right there. And they missed it, because their eyes were on these images, which they thought satisfied them. While we were reading, while we were singing, uh, Donald read from Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the glory of God is here. In his creation, it's all there. If we had eyes to see, you see, we could look into the heavens and we would fall on our face to worship God. Everyone sees it. You see, it's all around us. We simply don't acknowledge it. For his in- invisible attributes, and, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That is, they provoked him to jealousy. But they became futile in their thinking And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. You see, we always think we're getting it. We always think we're right. We always... That's the deception, you see. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so there they were, in these little rooms, worshipping these created things. By that they were looking to these created things, saying, Define me. Tell me what I'm to do. Tell me what I'm to think. Tell me what I'm to love. Tell me what's to attract me. Tell me what I'm to hate. Define my life. We think about those who believe that we've evolved and yet we look and realize that they're looking back into created beings. And looking to those created beings and saying, Oh, I've come from that. That defines me. And God says, No, it doesn't. That doesn't define you. I define you. Because I'm the one who's made you. Couldn't help but think about all the people who sit in little rooms alone looking at pictures on their screens to be satisfied by that which is base, by that which is loathsome to the Lord. They're looking at those images to be satis- to satisfy them, to say, "Tell me how I'm to think. Tell me how I'm to live. Tell me how I'm to." And they think God isn't really here. God isn't really seeing, and they've exchanged the glory of God for these these images, you see. and it provokes God to jealousy. And obviously, this is a hugely easy thing to pick on in our day. Because it's huge. You and I both know that 30 years ago in order to get some of the movies that are now pornographic movies that are available today you'd almost have to go into a back alley but now all you have to do is check into the Holiday Inn. And it's all there. And so in our little rooms you see we've come to glorify Sexuality, even to define ourselves by it, in the whole context of sexual preference, which defines who people are. You see. And he said, "No, this isn't the way it's to be. You've exchanged the glory of God for these images." He goes on, does God with Ezekiel, and he says it gets worse than that in verse. verse 14 he says, he takes them then to the north gate again of the house of the Lord. And behold, there said women weeping for Tammuz now. It's not a great common thing these days to weep for Tammuz. But Tammuz was a God, fertility God, God of vegetation really. And in the fall people would weep because the trees would fall off the, off the leaves. No, the leaves would fall off the trees. I'd weep about that too. And the vegetation would die would die back. And then there was a great celebration, you see, in in the spring, when the leaves would return, when the vegetation would return. But again, however we want to think about how barbaric that seems to be, the truth of the matter is, they weren't focusing attention on God. No different than really depending upon our ability to forecast the weather, by our ability to say, oh, we can, we can control our crops, and all that we have because we know all about fertilization and irrigation and, and we know all about chemicals and all of that and that's where we put our hope. Nobody ever thinks about God anymore when they plant stuff. It's this that we trust. It's the same kind of idea. And then what's even worse, he finds 25 priests who have their back to the temple of God and their face to the sun saying, oh, that's what provides all of that we need. Missing the very glory of God. And I couldn't help but think in the context of my own life. What is it that I value? What is it that I desire? How is it that I spend my time? How is it that I spend my thoughts? How is it that I provoke God in the context of my own life to this jealousy? Because what this tells me about God is He takes all of this. Terribly, terribly seriously. And he says that your life is to be a life of worship. Your life is to revolve around me. Your life is to focus around me. And if it isn't, then I'm jealous because your affections are going to another. And we see the judgment then that comes when the affections of people are not upon God. And he brings this judgment because you notice in chapter 9, six executioners come forward. And these six executioners come forward and, 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 and Ezekiel is, is sees them that God says, Go out and don't take pity on the older men, on the maidens, even the children. God takes this very seriously in the context of our own lives. Even in the context of our coming together in worship. This is just a sub-piece of the worship of our whole lives. But it's a significant sub-piece of our whole lives. And I was w- wondering even this morning as I, was, as I was coming into this place, going, am I taking this as seriously as God is? Is the focus of my attention as I enter into this place and is the focus of the attention when I leave here going to be upon Him? And we all know the fight for our minds. Sometimes it's just the fight to get here on time. It's the fight to leave Sunday school even and make it to the second service before that song starts and again I'm not trying to guilt you into showing up on time or any of that your big people deal with it but the truth is God takes this seriously and I wonder sometimes if we don't walk through life not realizing A. that his glory is before us and that he does see that he really is here I love it when children play games with you and they do this and they go you can't see me isn't that how we live a great deal of the time? We seem to walk around like this, and that God can't see us. Yes, he does. He really does. And it's not that he's looking upon us just waiting so that his thumb can come down upon us and squish us. He loves us. He cares for us. For in relationship with him, he desires us. He desires for our affections to be upon him. And yet when they're not, it does, in fact, just like a lover's affections, it provokes him to jealousy, and he wants to destroy that which comes in our way. And if not that, we find ourselves even, those who don't turn to him, under his wrath. See, we have a tendency in the context of our culture, even in corporate worship, to enter or leave or or choose to be in a worshiping community on the basis of whether or not we liked it or not. But you see, the the truth of the matter is, we have to ask the question, did, did God like it? Did he like it? Was it honoring to him? Were the things that were said, things which honor him, which were things that were sung, are they honoring to God? and things that were preached, are they honoring to him? It's not so much style, it's not so much method, it's not so much if I like it, it's whether he does. That's why we sang this opening hymn today, come by fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing your grace. It's a recognition of the fact that this is about Him. That our lives are about Him. And that we come to Him saying, change my heart so that I am able to appreciate what you appreciate, God. Change my heart so I am able to appreciate you. Change my heart so I can see your glory. Change my heart so that I don't want to get in a little room by myself and focus attention on things which I think satisfy me, but don't. No matter what those things might be. God, don't let me look at our government and those who are sitting in positions of power and trust them. And think because they're there, all will be well. Thank you for bringing an Arnold Schwarzenegger by every once in a while, just to bring reality going, okay, we can't trust them after all. (laughs) He's from California, so... Not a good indicator of the rest of the world. But, Lord, don't let me say, oh, as long as Alan Greenspan is alive, I guess the economy will be okay. They say, don't let him die. <laughs> don't let him retire. Just let him keep on. He, he knows what he's doing. As long as my doctor understands my body, God, then I'll be okay and he can tell me when I'm sick or not and what to do about that. All those things which focus our attention on another, God says, no, 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 I'll use all that as I will. But remember, I'm God. Ezekiel, you see, upon hearing all of this, falls before the Lord with a great question. And it's a burning question that's on his heart, really. And he says, okay, God, if that's the case, if there's all this corrupt worship going on in Jerusalem... And if that corrupt worship really does reflect the hearts of people, even God, the hearts of the people of Israel, then is there any hope? Will there? Will anyone escape this? Will there be a remnant of those who will be saved? And God threw in, as he brings in the six executioners, if you were listening, as I read, there's one who comes in with those six executioners, who has a a writing desk around his waist. And they're like an obsessive, compulsive accountant. There he is. And his job is to go out and put a mark on all those who are grieving the corrupt worship. All those who are saying, oh God, this is wrong what we're doing. This isn't right. All those whose affections are so sensitive to God that they realize that this corrupt worship is wrong. And he says, now I want you to go out, and I want you to put a mark on them. And though you're not going to spare anyone else, regardless of their position or their age or their gender or anything else, you will spare all those with the mark. And I began to think of another vision that one of other another of God's people had, the Apostle John. And you might remember that he saw these visions. And in these visions that John saw that are captured for us in the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation of John, we see in these visions uh, something to the effect of what's going to happen between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. Now I know there's all kinds of theories about this, but just take mine. (laughs) That there's that these visions and capture what happens between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. And each of them gives us a little different slant, a little different glance about what's going to take place. And we realize during this time period, the time period in which those people to, to whom John was writing and us and those who will come after us live, all kinds of things happen. Famines happen, wars happen, even persecution on believers happen. And we know what's behind the difficulties under the sovereignty of God, are these beasts. The beast that comes out of the sea, the beast that comes out of the land. And it's this second beast who gives a mark. And the second beast gives a mark on all those who worship the beast, that is, who don't worship God. And they have a great advantage while they live. The advantage while they live is that they're able to buy and sell. The disadvantage is that they're under the wrath of God. But there's another mark. There's a mark that God says to John that are on another group of people, believers. And they're listed variously in the Revelation, either as the 144,000 or as the great multitude or the servants of God. And they have a mark as well. And that mark comes with a name. And that name is the name of Jesus the disadvantage of that mark is that while you live you may come under the wrath of the beast but in the long run you receive the blessing of God who are those with that mark they're those who go before God and mourn their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, you see. And Jesus begins that whole teaching with blessed are the poor in spirit. We realize our bankruptcy, we mourn over our sin, we say our worship God of you is wrong, it's corrupt. We depend upon that which we shouldn't. We look to that which we shouldn't for definition of our own lives and our affections have been cast to another and we know that provokes you to jealousy and we're wrong and we are sorry. Please forgive us our sins. We say, oh, that's great, but if that kind of corrupt worship, all that we've been involved in ourselves, provokes God to jealousy and he sends out executioners, is there hope for any of us? And of course the answer is yes because there was one who didn't provoke God to jealousy and his name was Jesus. And he came and lived for us. And in his living for us he worshipped God and God alone. And in his dying for us he took our sins. Do you remember that The night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks... This too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And you see, as we look upon this table, we remember Jesus. And what do we remember? We remember that he's the one who did not provoke God to jealousy. Why? Because he worshipped God. He depended upon his father. His Father defined his whole life. Everything that Jesus did, he saw his Father do. Everything that Jesus said, he heard his Father say. Everything that was in the heart of Jesus was in the very heart of God. Everything that Jesus loved, the Father loved. Everything that Jesus hated, the Father hated. Everything that was true of Jesus came from the Father. And he did all that, was all that, for us, Because we have provoked him to jealousy. And Jesus' righteousness covers us. And then he took even the penalty of our sin. Upon the righteous one came our sin, so that we might be forgiven. Is there hope? Oh yes. Is there a remnant? Oh yes. When the executioners go out are they going to take and wipe out everyone and cast them into hell? Oh no. Why? Because there are some who are connected to by faith Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven even now I pray for me and for us even as we think upon these words and upon this table And you would enable us to think upon our own lives and see, yes, we have sinned. We've provoked you to jealousy and the things which we value and the way that we've spent our time, the way that we've used our money, the way that we've defined our lives, the things which have attracted our affections. And Father, we pray and give thanks that none of that was true of Jesus. And so we come to you through him that is in his name, that is dependent upon him and him alone. And we say, in him, because of him, we come. Forgive us our sins. And we pray that confidently because of Jesus And because of Jesus, that means that you are just, but yet still the justifier of all who believe. And Father, we place our trust in him that you might receive us. And though in this life we may suffer, we know even in this life there is blessing from you. And we know in the life to come, There is, in fact, life everlasting. We thank you for that. Father, I pray even now that you take this bread and juice and set it apart in such a way as to give us assurance to confirm this word in us.